Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. My name is Richard E. Grant, and in each episode, I'll be joined in the studio by a Penguin author, from world-renowned literary giants to comedians, musicians and fellow actors. And each guest will be bringing in a number of key objects that inspired and shaped the writing of their latest book. The Penguin Podcast with Richard E. Grant. Author's Notes. This week, I'm joined by award-winning comic Bridget Christie, who will be talking to me about her new book, A Book for Her. Her work has been described as insightful, intelligent and absurd in equal measure. Bridget, yes. can you give me a brief rundown of what we're going to be talking about today? Yes, I can, actually. Well, we're going to be talking about how a yoghurt advert perpetuates rape myths, mm-hmm. how I was given a sash, a Votes for Women sash, by Dr Helen Pankhurst, Emmeline Pankhurst's great-great-granddaughter, which she didn't actually give me, I've stolen. We're also going to be talking about female genital mutilation and also how vaginas are like gammon snowflakes. So not an evening with Anden Deck. The opposite of that. OK. And then there was the fart, the trigger for your current career, no less. Let's hear a clip from the audiobook of A Book for Her, read by your good self. And it was then, in that moment, that smelly moment, that everything fell into place. My life was given clarity that it hadn't had before. I felt as if I'd been given a feminist ordnance survey map with which I could now negotiate my way through life. I felt that all the things I'd ever been annoyed about, all the times I'd been made to feel stupid or paranoid or weak or frightened or a prude or frigid, all the times I'd been called feisty or spunky or gobby or bossy or fierce or weird, all the times I'd thought something was my fault when it wasn't, all the stupid things everyone had ever said to me simply because I was a girl. I understood all the violence and all the oppression happening around the world to women and girls every minute of every day. All these things had been given a provenance, but most importantly... I thought that this man's fart was also funny and it made me realise that terrible things can also be funny things and that if I could make a terrible thing funny, I might be onto something. So this was an epiphany for you? Absolutely. It was literally a light bulb moment. I mean, it wasn't just the fart, you know. All these other things had happened on that particular day. And I've now, heard... the listeners might not know what we're talking about. So can you, can you set up where yeah. you experienced this... Okay, so I'm. Yeah, I mean, I was at home in the morning. I'd had a film turned down by Amnesty, which was about maternal health and the developing world. The second thing I saw by accident, just about five minutes of The Only Way is Essex. And in those five minutes, these two young, beautiful girls were talking about how they would meet up and go and have Botox injections. And then they would go to the quiz night after that. And that really confused me because I thought. Because when I was 18, I'm 43 now, I would get ready for a quiz night by kind of reading up on my general knowledge and things like that. And I wondered what had happened in those intervening years that meant that young women were now having Botox for a quiz night and not reading up on their general knowledge. And also I thought, they're not going to play poker. Like, why do you need Botox for a quiz night? So it kind of upset me on many levels and it was like a wake-up call to how, how sort of common these procedures are now. The next thing that happened was about one o'clock in the afternoon, I read an unbelievably sexist review of myself, which implied that I'd only got anywhere by sort of having sex with people, sleeping my way up. And it was the language that he used was very crude and blunt. Then I went out. I wanted to buy three books, A Room of One's Own, Virginia Woolf, 
Mary Wollstonecraft, Vindication of the Rights of Women, and Dr Helen Castor's book. She'd just done a brilliant BBC Four series on all these powerful women before who no one really knows about. So I wanted to go and buy those three books. The man in the bookshop was incredibly obstructive and rude. Hadn't heard of Virginia Woolf. Sent me upstairs to find the women's studies section, which it wasn't upstairs, it was just all Hitler and cookery up there. Anyway, when I was on my way back downstairs, (laughs) I saw the guy who'd been really rude in the women's studies section. And he saw me and we clocked each other and then he looked really sheepish and walked off. And I was like, God, this guy's so weird. Then I got to the women's studies section and it stunk so badly. And there wasn't anyone else. And I just thought I was angry because it stunk. And I was like, that's it, isn't it? That's exactly it. And I thought either that's what this man thinks of all this feminist literature, that it's just something to fart at, (laughs) or he didn't even know where he was, which is even worse, because he didn't even know he was in the women's studies section. Bridget, how does this relate to your first object, which I'm I'm looking forward to seeing, that you're going to to expose to me? Well, you can't actually see it because it's in a jar. What, what, so your first object is a jar? Well, it's a fart, but it's in a jar, so you can't actually see it. But I wouldn't open the lid. OK. <laughs> that is an extraordinary way to start. So if you trained to be an actor, is that is that how you began? Yeah, I always wanted to be a com- from, like, four. So you're like Graham Norton in that you wanted to, you trained to be an actor and then you've become a comedian by default. Yeah, because I didn't get any jobs. <laughs> so exactly like Got Graham. Got no work. I thought that um, from a working-class background, nothing to kind of fall back on. So I've always had day jobs. Like, I left school really, like, 14, 15, Mm -hmm. no qualifications, really. Worked in offices until I was kind of 35, 36. I only started earning money from comedy in the last couple of years. But I thought I'd be a comedy actress from, like, four. Me and my dad used to watch Laurel and Hardy, Howard Lloyd, Charlie, all these brilliant... And, you know, there was a lot of brilliant parts for women in the old black and white, like, proper characters. Mm -hmm. The women in Laurel and Hardy are incredible. And uh, so that's always... I knew always what I wanted to do, but I also knew that, what is it, 5% 5% of actors are in work or something. Yeah. So I did loads of secretarial jobs and admin jobs. Then I kind of thought, hey, I could write my own stuff. Also, it's quite a depressing... It's different if you're successful. I don't know how many years you were going before. It's a quite a hard time. way to live, kind of waiting... You're basically waiting to be picked from people. Yeah. And if a lot of your identity is tied up with your work, it's quite a difficult way to live. My self-esteem was quite low. I felt like I had no control over my future. So do you think it fits the the equation that I've always thought about actors in all the years that I've been doing it, that on the one hand you have to have a large ego to say, choose me or look at me over and above everybody else, but at the same time you suffer from terrible low self-esteem? Yeah, I genuinely think that is the case. So the fart in the jar was a big... that, That was the epiphany for you? The fart in the jar was the moment I thought I could write stand-up about feminism. And it was also, it joined up all the dots for me personally as a feminist. So what was your material for those 12 years before? Oh, I I mean... Anything and everything? Yeah. A lot of historical characters. So the fart in the jar was the thing that that steered you in the direction that you've now gone in and has made you successful. I'd already been playing with the idea. I'd already dressed as an ant. I did a character which was an ant, which was a metaphor of how women in comedy are spoken about. So I would dress as an ant and I'd come out and I'd say, oh, it's really hard for ant comedians. You've judged us before we've even got to the microphone and all that sort of thing. But unless you saw a lot of comedy, (laughs) a lot of audiences were quite alienated and confused by a woman 
shouting about how annoying it was for ant comedians to always be described in terms of their... Were you a feminist ant comedian? Yes. OK. Yeah. But I still didn't have the confidence to talk about feminism in my own voice. I thought that dressing up as an ant would be less alienating than a woman talking about feminism. <laughs> so, Bridget, let's hear your definition of feminism. All feminists are lesbians. There is not a single heterosexual woman in the world who believes that women should have equal rights. Not one. If a feminist says she's heterosexual or bisexual or asexual, she's lying. They're all lesbians. Every feminist became a feminist because they were so fat and ugly that they couldn't get a man. Even the most repulsive man in the world. We've all tried to get him and he just doesn't want to know. I personally tried everything. I... I sent him boxes of pork scratchings. I dressed up like a sexy pork scratching and poured salt all over myself. I even polished his toolkit, and that's not a metaphor. I did everything. I was a cook in the kitchen, a cook in the bedroom, and a cook in the living room. I think that's what annoyed him, actually, all the cooking and the peelings everywhere. I'm not going to reveal the identity of the most repulsive man in the world, but here's a drawing I did of him. Ha ha, lazy audiobook buyers. You can't see the drawing because you've just bought the audiobook. Oh, what a shame. You have to buy the book and see the drawing that I did of him that's in the book that I wrote. That's absolutely... But it, it, it is extraordinary because when I was growing up in the 1970s, feminism and burning your bra was a revolutionary movement. <laughs> and now it's turned into something that... Has has negative connotations. Is that what you're saying? Um, I, I think the 90s were quite a bad decade for feminism. You had kind of post-feminism, ironic sexism, lad culture, things like that. I think in the sort of 70s and 80s, it was kind of moving in the right direction. And then the more sort of rights that were secured, the more people were like, oh, we don't need to keep banging on about this all the time. But I think then, again, in kind of... 2012, 2013, there was another, it was really zeitgeisty again, there was a lot of media coverage of feminism, it's sort of quietened down a bit now again. And do you find the people who are most critical of you are women or men? Well, now, the problem is, is that comedy is subjective, so people really take it really seriously. What they love, they really, really love, and what they hate, they really, really hate. Same with politics. And then if you combine those two things, you've got a double whammy of hatred and criticism. So... You know, you. Are, you but I would rather... People filled with hatred <laughs> laughing at you. I mean, the thing is, you have to decide what you want to do. I mean, I. what was really liberating for me in doing stand-up and writing this book was realising the fact that a lot of people will disagree with what you say. Once you realise that, mm-hmm. it's very freeing. Because you're constantly thinking, oh, what's so-and-so going to say about that, you know? But you can't really write like that. In terms of criticism, I think it's probably about level, but the harshest things have been said by women. How interesting. I think they think, well, I don't know. I mean, people do things for all sorts of reasons. I think something like feminism, sometimes women think that you're speaking for them and that can be problematic because we're not. It's not like feminism is not one thing. I mean, it's, it's insane to think that we would all think the same thing on every single issue. So you're very surprised when you're doing stand up. And I can't imagine that, what kind of courage it takes for you to do that. I'm, you know, awestruck that, that you get a response from some on, on some night that is so at odds with what you think you're saying and somebody just reacts. I do have you, had that. Pe- people interact with you. Yeah, it makes you feel absolutely appalling. I, I was paralysed with fear writing this book. I was a year late on it because of some of the stuff I was getting. I lost my nerve, basically. It so kind how of, do you get it back? 
How did I get it back? I thought that if I continued to be bothered by things, I should give up. So it was, I learn how to deal with this or I just stop. And I didn't want to stop. So I just dealt with it. So how do, how, do you, how do you maintain a Teflon carapace to, I don't know, stop yourself being hurt by this stuff? Well, you, you can't stop yourself being hurt. But I think if you accept that we're all fallible, we all make mistakes and sometimes we might slightly misjudge things and that you're in it for the long haul, then I would rather be criticised for trying. To me, failure is not trying. Okay. So do you think that feminism has taken a backward step compared to the big forward thrust of the 60s and 70s before you were born? I only no, ask because my daughter's 26 and I've heard, I've heard friends of hers say, you know, what are you talking about feminism? Every, everything is equal. We, are, we, we can vote, we're getting the same amount of money and then she points out the statistics that no, 16% no. Yeah. less than the majority the of men earn is what yeah, the sisters are. statistics are pretty bad. Yeah. But that's what, I mean, people say to me that... You have to keep talking about stuff because people actually, and this is, it's not patronising to say this, but people simply don't know the facts. It's a really strange thing with feminism because other human rights movements or civil rights movements are not criticised in the same kind of way. So how do you get around that? Because if you are performing for people, then are you performing to an audience of the converted no, already? No, not at all. In fact, I'm really glad you've brought that up, actually. It's not the converted. Even my own shows where people have paid to only come and see me, they won't know what I'm doing. They will have read somewhere, they might have read a good review, and then they, they get this, and they're in the wrong room, and it's not an easy sell. I mean, my job is to be funny. That's all I'm required to do. And how do you cope with, if it ever happens to you, with that tumbleweed silence that goes through if people are not laughing? Or has that never happened? Uh, I mean, (laughs) the stand-up comedian who says to you they do not regularly hear tumbleweed is a liar. It varies. We often go through phases of dying a lot and then having a lot of good gigs. I don't know why that is. But no, we will, especially if you turn over a new show every year, when you're running stuff in, it's difficult. We die all the time. The thing with stand-ups is any successful stand-up, whether you like what they do or not, they have worked to get there. Yeah. I mean, even if you really don't like it, they have gigged and gigged and gigged. Exactly. So what you learn after years of doing it and hundreds and hundreds of gigs, thousands sometimes, is you learn how to deal with different types of scenarios. And then the deaths, the silences become less frightening the more you experience them. you just got to power through or talk about it. But, um, yeah, anything can happen. It's kind of, it's addictive, you know. Okay. This is the Penguin Podcast. In the mood of anything can happen, a yoghurt is your next object. Please explain why that is in here today. Okay, so... And can you please show it to me? Oh, yeah. Oh, it looks really disgusting. It really doesn't look like a yoghurt. What, because it's not in the fancy packaging? Oh, yeah, that might be why. Why do you think that looks disgusting? Look at it. What would you do with that? Sloppy and pink and, I don't know. Sloppy and pink? Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) So the yoghurt, okay. Yeah. Right, this was an audition for a yoghurt that I went to. You know, I don't know if you've ever had this. I don't really laugh 
hysterically very often. I don't lose it very often. I'd mm. say probably about once every 10 years. But when I do, there's not much I can do about it. Once every 10 years? Yeah. I mean, like, prob- where I have to remove myself and people think they need to call an ambulance. It's usually <laughs> about something really absurd and subtle that nobody else thinks is funny. But once okay. I've gone, I've gone, and that's it. This was one of those times. So this was a younger advert. We went in in twos, female actor, male actor. It's humiliating. They're the wor- I mean... Yeah. Why would guaranteed humiliation every single time? Yeah, I'm with Even you. now in 2015. Yeah, I'm like, are you are you serious? So the scenario was that I was at home mm-hmm. on my own, and that I was peckish but not hungry. So I had to convey that in my face. <laughs> that was the first thing. I was like, sorry, can I what? They said, you're peckish but not hungry. So if you could just convey that in your face. Yes. Then they said, so you go to the fridge door, you open the fridge door, there's a man in there mm. holding a tray with a yoghurt on it. We don't want you to look surprised or threatened or, mm-hmm. you know, just be cool about it, you know. So that was the first thing. So, so I started laughing at this. Also, the guy I auditioned with, mm-hmm. oh, my God, he was such a square. I, I was laughing and he was like, can you get it together because this is my audition as well and you're really messing it up for me. And I was like, I'm really sorry, but come on, you're going to be inside a fridge. Also, that was a funny image to me. Was like, he fully clothed? Well, this is what I was laughing at. W- was he going to be naked or have icicles all on him or dressed as a snowman or would his head be in the icebox and his body... Where was his body? Like, was he on a shelf all scrunched up? And I said, I'm really sorry, but I wasn't told the scenario before I came in here. Yeah. But you've told me now and I'm fine. I said, but can I just check something about it? Do I know the man in the fridge? Like, do I know him? And they were like, no. And I was like, so he's a complete stranger then? And they were like, yeah, why would you know him? And I was like, oh, sorry, but you don't want me to look frightened or... I'm just to be cool. Scream and run away. Yeah, because it's in my house, isn't yeah. it? And they were like, no, 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 just be cool with it. And then they wanted me to swoon because I was sexually attracted to him. They said, take the yoghurt and then just swoon because he's really attractive. Without even tasting the yoghurt? Yeah, exactly. OK. Anyway, they I sent... you didn't get the part. No, they sent me out. They were really angry. <laughs> Because um, they had loads of people to see, and I was like, "Yeah, do I know him? How did he get in the fridge?" Like too many sh- questions. Yeah, too many questions. You've written an alternative scenario of what happens when you meet the man in the fridge. Let's hear the clip from that now, please. Okay. But your advert is easily fixed, Muller. It's just a little tweak. So I don't know. You could have me maybe waving my husband goodbye, saying, "Yes, yeah, see you tonight, then, love. Don't forget the yogurts," and winking. And then you should see him running around the side of the house, coming back in through the kitchen door, using his own key, getting into position in the back of the fridge with his little tray and his yogurt, while I pretend not to see him, being all coy and trying not to be annoyed because he's dragged all bloody mud across the floor from the garden because we're in a middle of a sexual fantasy. You know. Oh, a nice touch, Muller, would be to do a close-up of a photo of us together on the fridge door, of us like on our wedding day, or if we're not married, of us just having a great laugh together. That way, the viewers at home know that that's my sexual partner in there, and this is just a little <laughs> yoghurt-based sexual fantasy we've come up with between the two of us, <laughs> uh, and I'm perfectly safe. And I'll make some sort of embarrassed face as if I've just been found out. But at the moment, Muller, none of that is in it. It's just a woman, home alone, coming face-to-face with a potentially spiked yoghurt-wielding intruder. I'm afraid you're just giving rape apologist ammunition and I can't play any part in it, even for a £7,000 buyout. And anyway, Muller, I think you'll find that most women's rape fancies, as it were, do not involve already open yoghurts and strange men waiting in fridges. I know mine certainly don't. My rape fancies involve more prosecutions and longer sentences. 
here, here. Okay, but would it work? Would it work if the role of the man and the woman were swapped? I don't think that would happen. There's quite a lot about this. This routine is is a very big, long routine incorporating many different things. I mean, at the moment, we've only just heard about the yoghurt. It's how, in advertising, these kind of things are... We don't even notice them until they're pointed out to us. So we're expected to believe that a woman on her own is happy to find a man in her fridge and she's sexually aroused by him. And it's like everything is sexualized, like everything, like even yoghurt, you know, and we just don't sort of realise it. Okay, it seems like quite a simple, innocent thing. Mm-hmm. But actually, if you multiply that by a million things that happen all around us all the time, then that bleeds into this rape myths and... Subconscious bombardment. Yeah. What is very interesting is that you're talking about very provocative and highly charged subjects. When you were growing up, were you encouraged to talk and ask questions like this in the household that you grew up in? No. (laughs) Not at all. No. I mean, I was the youngest of nine children, so any kind of talks or discussions that we'd have sitting around the fire, ghost stories, talking, debating. Mm -hmm. But because I was the ninth, by the time you'd got to my opinion on something, everyone had gone to the toilet. So, like, no-one's interested. And I was the little one. Oh, is she going to say something? So has this given you the motor to talk and to ask questions? I don't know, Richard. I, I, I mean... I suppose I do ask a lot of questions, but I mean, I I ask questions about how lifts work. I do ask a lot of questions now. I mean, I wasn't, my parents were very, are very, my mother died, but my father, they're very staunch Irish Roman Catholics. We weren't encouraged to ask questions about things that we found really difficult to understand, like the ascension of Christ into heaven. I remember asking my dad about gravity and the weather on that day and Mm. Was it windy or did he get rained on? You know, these sorts of questions that a four-year-old would ask. About. And did they always try and put the lid on you asking these questions? Yeah, they'd say we just accept it like we had to accept it when we were growing up in Ireland, you know. Bridget, I want to know what you've got next in your magic carpet bag. OK, I'm going to get it. OK, leaning over. This is my it. most treasured possession. That Ironically, Please this describe sash... it, because I'm, I'm feeling it and I'm smelling it. OK, it is a beautiful purple-gold... Green and white sash. Votes, for, votes women. for women written on it, which I was given by Dr. Helen Pankhurst, Emmeline Pankhurst, great great granddaughter. She has a charity, Walk in Her Shoes, that's mm-hmm. part of Care Internationals. Basically, there are thousands of girls, women and girls, who all they do is walk for water all day. Mm-hmm. They just walk for water. And we were given sashes to wear for the walk, yeah. but we were supposed to give them back. <laughs> I emailed Helen and I said, I've still got your sash. You oh, know. you did. Yeah, but she didn't reply, so I'm hoping that she's just sort of forgotten. But I've got a story about this, actually, which is that we did this walk on the South Bank, which was really amazing, Annie Lennox and Paloma Faith and everyone. You know, it's really great. There's lots yeah, it's of really huge great... huge Sandy Toxvig. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And what an honour and a privilege. I mean, I think out of all the things that's happened, the most amazing thing is being asked to go on this walk because I'm just like... An idiot who tells jokes, you know. But it, I was so humbled by being invited by her on this walk. It's so important to have your peers and people who you really respect and admire to have their endorsement. To, to have you. their encouragement and, and endorsement, you know. And it does really matter. That's another thing about writing this book. It's sort of your, on the one hand, you're paralysed by fear, but all the imagined criticism that you're going to have. Yeah that actually might not be there anyway. But there must be some part of you that is very steely because you are fearless in in talking about issues that people don't like to talk about, like female genital 
mutilation. Yeah, I mean, horrendous subjects, absolutely horrendous. But I've thought really hard about these things. And the generosity of, of campaigners and activists who talk to me, you know, I say, do you think I have any right to talk about this stuff? All these things, it's kind of not about me anymore. I'm like a, a conduit mm-hmm. for this. I don't uh, include myself in this thing. Like my friend Leila Hussein, who's an FGM survivor, she's an activist campaigner, amazing, amazing, one of the most amazing people I've ever met in my entire life. She's like, we all have different things to bring to the table. You're a comedian, so that's what you use. Someone else might use something else. I want to ask you about a statistic that I found very surprising and shocking in terms of your going on this march and the suffragette movement of the last 100 years, is that in 2010, the general election, nine million women in this country didn't vote. But that's not surprising. Loads of people didn't vote. But I think not voting is not... You're just not having your voice heard. The establishment and the government are not going, oh, no, there's all these people not voting. They why, want you but, to not but vote. But why did more women not vote than men, do you think? Because, A, they're not re- represented. Okay. One in four MPs is, is a woman. We're c- completely outnumbered in terms of representation. None of them talk about women's, apart from in like the final weeks of a general election, they suddenly whip out their women's T-shirts that this is what a feminist looks like. Right. All the party leaders suddenly wear them. Which I always wait for at every election. I think, when are they going to whip the women's T-shirts out? And hold it's the like baby they, short. Yeah, it's like they suddenly remember we can vote and there's loads of us now. But you've got to vote. I mean, women died so that we could vote. OK. But I, I'm not judging, but I don't want to be You are judging. judging. Yes, I am judging, actually, and I think everyone should That's the whole point. You are judging. That's that's what you're doing, and that's what your book is doing. It's a provocation beating at the door, you know, with your (laughs) your voice at the wall of prejudice and ignorance. What is your next object? This is the clapperboard. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned Leila Hussain. Yes. Leading anti-FGM campaigner, activist, survivor, and now dear, dear friend... I was asked to do a charity benefit for Manor Gardens Health Advocacy Project, which does community-level FGM prevention work. Can, I, can so. I just ask you to be very clear and say what FGM is, in case there is one person listening to this podcast that doesn't know what we're talking about? OK, so female genital mutilation, well, there's four different types, so affected 130 million w- women worldwide estimated at the moment. Staggering, but, double yeah. the population of the UK. Yeah, it's just basically to control women's sexuality, so that is the clitoris and the labial lips are cut and the most extreme version is then the vagina is sewn up leaving a tiny hole for women to menstruate and urinate and give birth through mm-hmm. so basically to control women's sexuality it's been going on for 5000 years now, why... there are over 20000 girls in the UK every year at risk of fgm okay how do, sorry I... just just take me back how does this clapperboard relate to talking about fgm so i met layla mm-hmm. And she'd seen, um, there's a guy called Zach Galifianakis who's got a website called the Funny or Die website. It's the mm-hmm. funniest, yeah, best thing I've ever seen. Big fan. I don't know if you've seen the Obamacare yeah, yeah, one. Yeah. So she'd seen the Obamacare <laughs> one. And she said, can we do something like this? Because I've seen some of your clips. Can we do something like this but for FGM? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, really? <laughs> do you think, you know, do you think so? And she said, yeah. I mean, the thing is, Layla is an FGM survivor, activist and campaigner. Basically, if she suggests something to do with that... I think it's, we've pretty much she got it the licence to do it. Exactly. So it was Layla's film, Layla's idea. She's the star of it. So we decided to make the short film because we wanted to show it at the benefit that we were at, at the end of the comedy benefit that we had at the Bloomsbury Theatre in London. We were going to show this film. 
Bridget, let's hear another clip from A Book for Her about this film in which you tell us what Leila Hussein's reaction was about this film that she made. The film, for me, isn't about dismissing the pain of FGM. I was taking the piss out of a system designed to control me. Culture gave FGM status. By laughing about it, I was lowering its status. I was taking the importance of FGM away from it in the same way that rappers reclaimed the N-word. My response was to laugh at FGM, to take it less seriously. It has a status that it doesn't deserve. It says, you will remain a virgin until you get married. Well, I tell you something, it didn't work. What kind of a reaction did you get when you first included this material in your stand-up? People were quite awkward and horrified and wanted a joke. <laughs> yeah, somebody to lighten it up. But you know something, you've got to commit to it. You can't do it half-cocked. You've got to decide, I'm going to talk about this appalling thing. My critics have said, you know, you're using the abuse of women to further your... You know, people say to me after gigs, I did not know that. I didn't realise the scale of it. Mm -hmm. Even GPs have said to me they didn't quite understand the scale of it. They've emailed me, so I know that people don't know about it. And it's raising awareness. Like I said, it's not really about me anymore. Me having a bad gig... It's bigger than that. It's much bigger than that. So in a way, you know, what, what, I mean, just to draw an analogy, you're, it's almost like you're dealing with FGM in the way that Mel Brooks took on narcissism by doing the producers, by laughing yeah, at it. By laughing at it. Yeah. yeah. So were you scared when you first started doing this material? I, I wasn't scared because before I even contemplated doing yeah. anything, I spoke at length to Layla. So she was the one I, I who gave you the licence to do I it I wanted to talk about it. She gave me licence to do it. And I thought, if Layla thinks this is... Obviously, she doesn't speak the, for all women, all survivors. Mm -hmm. Obviously, she doesn't. But she speaks for one of them, and that's enough for me. Now, talking about it, it seems like quite an arrogant thing to do, to think that I could talk about that. It seems an incredibly bold it's, thing to do to well, me. I don't know. But, <laughs> well, or, or arrogant, bold or arrogant. But I just... Um, well, you have to be I both to be a stand-up because the bravery of doing <laughs> that is requires boldness and arrogance. What's your final object? Um, oh! <laughs> it's a really disgusting-looking piece of gammon. Why do you think it looks disgusting? Because look at it. Right. It looks okay. repulsive. Pink and squishy. Can't really smell it. Piece a of gammon steak is not a good-looking thing. OK. Let's hear a passage from A Book for Her that gives us a bit more background to this. Here in the West, we are choosing to have our genitals altered by cosmetic surgeons because the mainstreaming of porn has given men and women an unrealistic idea of what a vagina looks like. Ladies, please, leave your vaginas alone. They are all magnificent. They're not all meant to look the same. They're all supposed to look different. Every single vagina in the world is completely unique and magical. Vaginas are like snowflakes made of gammon. <laughs> I'll never be able to think of one in any other terms than that. OK, there's there's an obvious, you know, loud, neon-lit irony that we're talking about FGM on the one hand and now you've brought in a gammon steak, which is the cue for you to talk about labiaplasty. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, labial surgery, the surgical trimming of ladies' 
bits because women are feeling bad about their labias are too long or not the right shape or flappy, flappy or droopy. Yeah, whatever. I'm not judging women who've had surgery or, or those things done. It's why are we having them done? What's making us spend our money on these things? And where does it end? Low self-esteem. And, what, and the st- statistics for it are very, very high, aren't they? Yeah, really, really high. I mean, it's... 90% of British women were recently cited as suffering from body image anxiety. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's quite... Um, but is labiaplasty, but, is that, is that, is, would that be a fashion, like having your anus th- bleached so that Hollywood it, producers can see it in the middle of the night? Yeah, I mean, it is, it is one of the most popular... I think it might be the third most popular procedure now, after breast implants and... I think Botox. But do you think these things go in fashions? So that yes, everybody, I... you know, you have a tattoo now. Yeah, but what's going to happen? You can't put your discarded labias back on, can you? No. But do you think men have the same body image obsession that, that women are bombarded with in the media? I don't think this is as big a problem. I don't know if young boys define themselves by what they look like. I mean, my my boy's eight, so I'm not quite sure yet, but I don't think it's the same thing. So much of a girl's kind of self-esteem and confidence and identity is tied up with how she looks. Do you have any female friends who have had labiaplasty? No. Well, they've not told me. But do you understand why they do it? Of course. I read a really upsetting story about a woman who used to have nightmares about her labia. Extraordinary. That they were all... You know, flapping in the four winds like elephant yeah, ears. Yeah, like literally, you know. And um, but she'd imagine but, but, that they were there because yeah, it's a t- it's like size. less than one percent of vaginas are not normal. Yeah, yeah, it's like a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage. So are you advocating that we grow hair back and don't do any? Yeah, let it all go because when this fashion is over and it will, it's not sustainable. I mean, it will pass. Yeah. We can't. Like we're not going to be able to put them all back. We can't it's a risk, it's so risky. If there was a message, which I'm not sure that there is, we need to get our self-esteem from other places. Bridget, thank you very, very much for bringing in your extraordinary and completely unique objects today and the stories that they have let rip forth. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been an enormous pleasure and a privilege. Please follow us on Twitter at Penguin UK Books and join us on Facebook to see pictures of all the objects we've chatted about today and to see who else will be joining me in the Penguin Studio soon.